Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a new podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the week's biggest political stories with fellow Politics Home reporters and special guests from across Westminster. Last week's local elections threw up a historic result in Northern Ireland, where Sinn Féin won the most seats in the Assembly for the very first time, giving them the right to hold the post of First Minister. Second place DUP have threatened to prevent a new executive being formed, expressing particular opposition to the post-Brexit Northern Ireland Protocol, which the UK government is looking increasingly likely to scrap. This could threaten a trade retaliation from the EU at a time when the UK is already dealing with a cost-of-living crisis. However, UK government claims doing so would protect the Good Friday Peace Agreement. Joining me this week to discuss the new wave of turbulence for the province is our political editor Adam Payne, as well as two special guests, columnist for the Irish Times, Finn McRedmond, along with former Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Conservative MP Julian Smith. Starting with you, Adam, you've just returned from Belfast, where you've been meeting with some of the key figures in Northern Irish politics. Can you explain where we are at the moment and a bit about how we got to this point? Yes, so I was in Belfast for three days earlier this week, meeting people across the political spectrum following last week's result. And as you said, Alan, Sinn Féin were returned as the largest party last week, the first time ever that a Nationalist Republican Party was returned as the largest party, but we're going to be without a fully functioning executive in Northern Ireland for the foreseeable future, it seems. And that's because under the power sharing arrangement that was established as part of the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, the two leadership posts in Northern Ireland, the First Minister and Deputy First Minister, are shared between the two largest unionist and nationalist parties under a principle we call designation. What that means is that in order to have a fully functioning government in Northern Ireland, you cannot have one without the other. You cannot have the unionist designation without the nationalist designation. So what's happening right now is Sinn Féin, as you said, was the largest party, a historic result, and their leader in Northern Ireland, Michelle O'Neill, is in position to be First Minister. However, the Democratic Unionist Party, led by Geoffrey Donaldson, is currently refusing to nominate a deputy first minister over their opposition to the Northern Ireland Protocol. And the DUP's position is that until or unless the protocol is sufficiently dealt with in their eyes, then they are not going to enter to government. Now, the parties in Northern Ireland have 24 weeks to reach an agreement to form an executive. If they fail to do that, then Brandon Lewis, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, is obliged to call a new election within 12 weeks. So I guess now the focus, as it is already, is on the Northern Ireland Protocol. It's very much back in the headlines. And it looks like the UK government could be preparing some sort of contentious unilateral action to change the protocol, to make it less disruptive to Northern Irish business. And they hope to get the executive in Belfast back up and running. Mm. Finn, on that result, both in kind of how the results in the assembly has been viewed but also kind of the the talk from the rhetoric from the UK government about the protocol how is that being viewed do you think by the government in Dublin? I think there's a few interesting things going on in Dublin the main thing that I think is most concerning for all parties involved is that trust in Boris Johnson trust in the British government from Dublin right now is very low Dublin are saying that they want to play like you know play an honest broker in this situation you know do everything they can to get this executive up and running obviously they would say that but they're not necessarily convinced that Boris Johnson is playing straight bat with them when it comes to the protocol and the negotiations between Johnson and his team and the European Union the commission and also perhaps what will happen in Northern Ireland how they're going to form this executive so otherwise I think politics in Northern Ireland don't necessarily impact 
politics of Southern Ireland that much. There is one theory emerging at the moment, which I'm not entirely sure I believe, but I would be interested in what your views on it, is that Dublin are trying to overplay the massive success of Alliance Party, this kind of third way to slightly downplay this emergence of Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland because, the, you know, the fear emergence of Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland that gives them momentum south of the border and then, you know, we could see a Sinn Féin government south of the border and north of the border. So I think that's kind of the lay of the land at the moment. Interesting. Obviously, Julian, you were Secretary of State during the last kind of impasse and you helped sort of broker the negotiations to get a power-sharing executive back on track. What do you think is going to happen? Do you think the likelihood of, of getting one this time round is... Well, first of all, I think on the results, lots of uh, significant aspects of it. We've talked about the Alliance Party with their surge, but also, you know, 24 years on from the Good Friday Agreement, the parties whose um, antecedents or, you know, military wing laid down arms for politics have now taken that uh, poll position. And also the DUP, stronger than people thought they were going to be. Yeah. And most importantly, just going back to what Adam said, the vote share between unionists and nationalists, roughly the same, so 40%. And, you know, you need both to get a power sharing executive uh, going. So therefore, you know, the, the issues that unionism, political unionism has around the protocol are key. I think it's worth just saying that for Northern Ireland business, I understand they've been very clear with the UK government, as I have heard and others will have heard, that uh, whilst there are issues with the protocol, they like the fact that uh, Northern Ireland faces both ways and that Northern Ireland is actually seeing quite a lot of inward investment uh, as a result of the protocol. That said, political unionism does need significant change from the EU on East-West checks and on how divergence at a regulatory level is dealt with. And I obviously am encouraging, you know, rapid discussion with the EU to try to, you know, find solutions in that area. Before we go on to the protocol, I think the fact that Finn and Julian both mentioned alliance is really important. I think Sinn Féin's victory is clearly the headline sort of bullet point from these elections. But alliance and their performance, so perhaps for listeners who aren't massively familiar with alliance, they're what we call a non-aligned party. They don't take a position on the constitutional question they don't categorise themselves as nationalist or unionist. They had a really great election, very young party. I, I'm told when I was in Belfast, we've got a very effective campaign machine. They had a very detailed, long manifesto. They're really trying to focus on bread and butter issues rather than the sort of perennial constitutional argument. And I think going forward, there are big questions around, so Julian noted how it's 24 years since the Good Friday Agreement was signed. Next year will be the 25th year anniversary. And if Alliance continue to do well, let's say their support continues to build over the next few years, and they may be in a position to be the second largest party, perhaps the largest party, under the current power-sharing arrangements, that just doesn't work because it only facilitates a unionist and nationalist designation. So I think going forward, Alliance's performance, if it continues to improve will, I imagine, trigger questions about the power-sharing arrangements and whether they need to be modernised mm. to reflect changes in Northern Irish politics, Northern Irish society. And what I'd say on that is just that actually to do that now, just as after the election results, in my view, would not get agreement from all of the parties. The priority to answer your question, and I think it has to be get the protocol issues sorted for the deep thing, shunt them back into power. I don't buy this idea that we can wait 24 weeks. I don't think the Northern Ireland electorate and voters are going to stand for the £6.7 million a year in MLA salaries 
being shelled out during a cost of living crisis. There is the need for the protocol to be sorted, but time is of the essence and they need to get back to work. I think one thing that's interesting about Alliance, kind of more philosophically for their standpoint, is that now that Naomi Long, their leader, has you know returned an amazing result in this election, she's going to come under increasing pressure to kind of declare her position. Now, reunification, you know, is a, is a big word and it's a big question and it's actually probably a problem that's quite a long way down the line. But we're going to be hearing a lot more about it now, especially with Sinn Féin, you know, with the rights of First Minister. When we talk about alliance, we go, oh, this is, you know, the, the neither. the people who are neither unionists, neither Republican. They don't massively think in super sectarian ways. You know, one of the alliance policies is that Protestants and Catholic school children should go together. That was quite a big thing that I think was missed a lot. But at the end of the day, the way that unionists get their way or the way that Republicans get their way is by coming to the centre ground and trying to convince these neithers and they're gonna have to pick a side at some point and Naomi Long is in I think a difficult political position now you say pick a side I'm not totally sure if I agree I think all of the debate around constitution that goes on but actually I I found when I was Secretary of State and I think we're seeing again now most women and men in Northern Ireland want bread and butter issues dealt with cost of living issues dealt with and it's highly likely the Good Friday Agreement actually lasts a lot longer Mm -hmm. than people think Mm -hmm. my prediction would be that uh, this historic agreement that the United Kingdom and Ireland and others supported by America can be proud of will last many, many more years mm-hmm. than, than people predict now. And actually Sinn Féin didn't necessarily campaign on, on Republican issues. Mm-hmm. They, they, it was the bread and butter issues that Julian mentioned and it was actually on the cost of living issues and, and therefore I think that's part of the reason why the DUP their vote share went down, they lost sort of support to the more moderate side and to the more hardcore, the TUV side mm-hmm. as well on that. And whether uh, the Alliance Party is the first generation of voters now who've grown up post Good Friday agreement. Mm-hmm. And do you think that's kind of leading to those people who are more neither, who are less bound by one side or the other. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, generation of voters who grew up not during the Troubles as well, which has a massive emotional impact on yeah. the way that these people are voting. I also think there are things going on in Dublin that are indicating this middle way and this kind of non-aligned way. So we have Michal Martin's thing called um, the Shared Island Initiative, which is talking about how is there, how do we have like better cross-community things on healthcare, on travel, you know, and it's kind of a, a slightly non-political, it's a non-sectarian community project that I think is kind of t- reflecting the, the mood that also returns a big vote for Alliance, if that makes sense. Mm. And I think that's why the Conservative Party just needs to think carefully about you know how best to ensure that that group of people stay attracted to the union because I think uh, it was clear my strategy as Secretary of State was to try to encourage those people towards the union but be empathetic to their thoughts towards the island of Ireland and I think it is really important that Northern Ireland is a, a situation in the union which is, is, is different from Scotland, it is different from Wales the sensitivity and the humility that's required to actually ensure that that middle ground vote uh, stays in the United Kingdom, I think is worth um, certainly my party, my colleagues, constantly keeping it front of the mind. Something that's interesting, you and I've picked up the last few weeks is, I think this speaks to the fact that for a lot of people in Westminster, Alliance feels like a new phenomenon, of course it isn't, it's got a long history, is some Tory MPs I've spoken to assumed that Alliance is a Catholic Nationalist Party because Stephen Farry, its representative in Westminster, has been so vocal in regards to the government's handling of the protocol. So I think there's an element as well of Westminster politics getting up to speed with what's going on. Well, I think there's also a question for Westminster politics when it talks about the fact it's committed to Northern Ireland. Is it committed to Northern Ireland, something about some parts of it, or is Northern Ireland sometimes used for other agendas? And I think my priority as somebody that uh, really wants to stand up for 
Northern Ireland is to, you know, as we go through the coming weeks, to make sure that Northern Ireland's priorities, Northern Ireland's requirements are front of centre and not being used as a vehicle for other people's priorities. Mm. These kind of wide-ranging issues, unfortunately, have been brought into very sharp focus by the government's rhetoric on the on the protocol recently. We've just had Swella Braveman, the Attorney General, potentially having legal advice saying that it would be lawful to override the protocol. Obviously, we had Liz Truss, who's in charge of the negotiations, having calls with Sefcovic as, as early as today about this kind of stuff. And Adam, where kind of we are on the, on the protocol at the moment? Well, <laughs> <laughs> nice easy one for you. It's just we've been here so many times before. Yeah. I've been covering Brexit for a few years now, and it just feels like a sort of reoccurring sort of nightmare. But um, you should try being the Conservative Party's <laughs> chief whip. <laughs> <laughs> Could possibly imagine, Julian. I think what's happened in the last week is a serious development. So these negotiations between the UK and the EU over how to change the protocol have been going on since early last year. Just from anyone who's following Brexit over the last few years, it will be very, very familiar with this sort of cycle of aggressive briefing, quite bellicose rhetoric, threats to do X, Y and Z. And then the two sides at the 11th hour agree some sort of um, mutually acceptable compromise. Why I feel this is different is that in the last few weeks, various figures in government have been briefing that they are preparing something unilateral on the protocol, something, i.e. they're going to take action on the protocol to change it, to minimise its impact on trade across the Irish Sea, which won't have the permission of the European Union. Liz Truss and her team have prepared some legislation to achieve that. We've just seen the general rhetoric across government sort of being escalated and having spoken to figures on the EU side in the last week or so, they are very much preparing yeah. for the government to take unilateral action. There are several elements to this, but I was interested in a briefing that was reported by Nick Watt of the BBC on Wednesday night. And he said that the Prime Minister believes, even if they were to go forward with primary legislation, that it would take potentially up to a year yeah. to get it implemented due to wrangling in Parliament because the Lords are probably going to absolutely shred it. So bits, uh, we could have a potentially rebellion of MPs. Julian, perhaps you could share some light on that for us in a second. And potentially legal hurdles as well. So my hunch, and this naturally will probably age terribly, is that if that is the case, if that's the sort of timeline we're looking at, that does still provide quite a bit of time for the two sides to agree some sort of landing zone. So while I do think what's happened in the last week or so of these briefings is, is certainly an escalation, I still wouldn't completely rule out the possibility of the two sides negotiating something. Julian, what do you think about that possibility? But also, do you think there'd be a significant number of colleagues in the Conservative Party who'd feel uncomfortable voting for something like that? So I'm going to avoid those parts of your questions, Adam, and focus <laughs> on what I think has to happen and which obviously will ultimately happen, which is an agreement between the EU and the UK. And again, going back to Northern Ireland and what is important for Northern Ireland, that needs to happen as quickly as possible. And I think what we saw during the Theresa May years when we needed an exit mechanism or a time limit to the backstop, the EU didn't shift at that point. And I think it is really important. And the, the message I'm trying to communicate to EU interlocutors is you might not want to shift for the ERG, but do listen to Northern Ireland and political unionism on what it needs to give them the flexibilities, east-west checks, regulated divergence, and address this so they can get power sharing back up and running. But a negotiated response ultimately will be 
a quicker response because other options could, I think, take a long time and political unionism needs these issues fixed as quickly as possible so we can get back into power sharing. Do you think there's a landing zone there? I would argue there's almost a landing zone and uh, those who might pretend there isn't may have other priorities. On the protocol, it looks like the government could tail with this legislation soon. I mean, from your experience of being a Secretary of State, how does even next few weeks playing out? I would argue we, we have to collectively focusing on getting people back into power sharing as soon as possible. For all of the other issues that you've mentioned, conversations between the EU and the UK, between the EU and Northern Ireland parties, between the UK and Northern Ireland parties, between all of these people and Northern Ireland business is the only route I see as a, as a way of getting through this ultimately. And Finn, what Simon Coveney obviously has been a bit upset with some of the rhetoric coming out from the UK government. What do you think Dublin's position is on, on fixing both the protocol route and then how that's going to affect kind of Stormont and, and their, Dublin's relationship with Belfast? Well, I think the first thing that's interesting about the protocol and the route to getting a functioning executive is a lot of the writing and the general rhetoric that's coming out is saying, what does Jeffrey Donaldson want? How can we convince Jeffrey Donaldson to come into this arrangement? First of all, it's not Jeffrey Donaldson's negotiation. It's between the United Kingdom and the European Commission. And secondly, to try and get Jeffrey Donaldson to want to go play second fiddle to Sinn Féin, basically, which is what he does not want to do. The DUP, some might say, have a bit of a supremacy complex. If you think back to, I think it was 98, the SDLP and Trimble, they kind of came to an agreement that they gave Trimble just the title of first minister, you know, technically the same as deputy first minister, but gave him the title to give him something that looked like a victory. Is there something that they can offer Donaldson that looks like a victory that will allow him to say it's all fine? Which is interesting. And I think there's a lot of people in Dublin right now thinking about what that might look like. But I mean, it's interesting your comments on Donaldson. Cause I, actually, I think unionism is pretty confident. I mean, they've got a, a similar share of the vote to nationalist parties. I obviously tried to get them several times to sign up to the deal when I was chief whip mm-hmm. for Theresa May. That failed, but then we got them back into power sharing. They want to govern as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've run ministries effectively, and I genuinely think they want to get back into power. So I think the biggest issue is the protocol. I think when you open up these other issues, they become problematic because you don't get, or it's difficult to get a majority of support. Mm -hmm. And I also think whilst there may need to be discussion about elements of the rules around power sharing or GFA in the fullness of time, doing that once you've just had an election result, I think is always going to be very, very tricky. Mm -hmm. So I think I would come back to the fact that getting clarity on east-west checks fudges and uh, kicks into the long grass on regulated diversions and other issues and a political deal. I mean, one of the things that's uh, not been happening is that the, the negotiation is very binary. I think Liz Truss had a much better atmosphere in those initial days when she took over, inviting the EU negotiated to Chevening and all those things. But I think we need to get back to that and back to a political solution. There was perhaps then just a little bit of sabre-rattling from Donaldson in the approach to the election, several implications that he wouldn't take up second position. The morning after the election, they then made a very clear statement on BBC Radio Ulster, I think, saying once the protocol is sorted out with a democratic unionist party, of course we will set an executive, but the protocol is a big issue. There is a sense that some 
voters who might be more inclined towards more center ground parties like the SDLP were put off by this saber rattling tactic, if that's what it was, and offered some of their second preference votes to Sinn Féin and that kind of galvanized Sinn Féin support. The realities are clear. Both parties have security, both through the equal legal powers of Mm -hmm. the First and Deputy First Minister. Mm -hmm. There's the cross-community voting rules. Uh, And also just going to the issue of uh, constitutional uh, status, there is no demand for a border poll at the moment, or minimal demand. I mean, so really, I think unionism can be quite confident about its position to win back and to ensure that those middle ground voters stay within the United Kingdom. That requires a a humility and a focus and a deafness of touch, which uh, we all need to keep focused on. I think it's probably worth as well setting out some of the arguments that are being made on both sides, in the EU and UK in regards to protocol. Let's take the EU side. Arguments they make are firstly, well, a majority of MLAs elected to the Assembly actually support the protocol and don't want to get rid of it. But then the second argument being, is really not on for the UK to breach this international agreement while at the same time we're trying to lecture Vladimir Putin on respecting international law and and norms. But on on the UK side, they say, well, hold on a minute. We accept that a majority of MLAs support the protocol, don't see it scrapped. However, it doesn't have what they call cross-community consent. And secondly, I've also had it put to me by someone in government that obviously there's lots of talk at the moment of trade retaliation, i.e. if the government does override the protocol, the EU will respond by essentially suspending parts of the trade deal signed as part of Brexit, which would mean even more barriers on British businesses trying to export their stuff to the continent. It's been put to me privately, and actually Lord Frost, Liz Truss's predecessor, actually said as much in a speech recently that he thinks, and this person told me, believes that there actually might be less appetite among EU member states. They might struggle to find unanimous agreement to punish the United Kingdom out of this feeling of we can need to stick together here in response to Ukraine. But you still could see some practical things like individual countries taking action, like the French is talking perhaps a go slow at Calais and that sort of stuff. What are the other kind of practicalities you think of, of if the protocol was to be suspended or was to get rid of? Well, I think France and Germany lead opinion on this. But I thought it was interesting, Jacob Rees-Mogg, the Brexit Opportunities Minister, um, was on ITV this week and he was asked about the prospect of a trade war, trade retaliation, and he said, I thought it was really interesting. The UK government is not going to get dragged into that. And my reading of that is that if the EU was to impose, let's say, I don't know, tariffs, non-tariff barriers on British businesses trying to export stuff to the EU, the UK government wouldn't necessarily respond by doing the same thing to EU businesses. Why would the government decide to do that? Well, because if you did impose even more red tape bureaucracy on EU exporters to Britain, you're going to drive food prices even higher. You're going to drive inflation at the same time as a cost of living crisis. Yeah, there's the wider context, isn't there, we've got to exactly. talk about as well, right? But what, but what it would mean also, if Jacob Rees-Mogg was to win that argument and that was the government's position, you'd have this really incredible imbalance whereby British businesses try to send stuff to the continent would face a hellish panoply of sort of red tape. But European businesses do it the other way would be dealing with much, much lower friction. But Adam, my, my prediction would be we've got to sort this out well before this all kicks yes. off. We're here to support Northern Ireland. And what Northern Ireland people need is the same thing as people in across the rest of the UK and Ireland. Cost of living crisis, health crisis, as, as you've mentioned. We've shown with the issue of the Ukraine that the UK is able to work constructively and really add value with our European colleagues. That No one's suggesting we're going back into the EU 
But we do need to, for this fragile part of the European continent, where the EU has actually, over many years, assisted on the Good Friday Agreement with funds, investment and support, we need them to step forward and help address things, and we too need to reciprocate and come to a deal. Interesting. One of the things we've touched on a couple of times is whether the kind of Sinn Féin's victory would lead towards a united Ireland. And the columnist Fintan O'Toole this week said, only a fool would think that it's coming soon, and only a bigger fool would think that it has not in some form come closer. Finn, I wonder what your thoughts were on that. Firstly, from Westminster, or even from the UK, one of the most consistent trends is a lack of attention paid to Northern Ireland. Unwillingness to accept perhaps a new political reality or a blindness to um, the technicalities. You know, we saw it leading up to the Brexit vote. Aside from an intervention from John Major, there wasn't really any talk about the border. Whereas in Ireland, there was this banging drums being like, listen, the border is not going to become a problem, it will become the problem. It's the epicentre of this whole thing. And I think something similar has been happening with Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin have been on the up for a while now. So in the most recent general election in in the south of Ireland, they did very, very well. And there has been a similar blindness to this rise. And then it almost seems like there's a shock that the thing that everyone said was going to happen, happened. The most damaging thing with that, you know, the emergence of Sinn Féin, like it was a surprise, is that it means that people in Westminster don't know how to treat a Sinn Féin victory. They don't know how to read it. I think, Julian, you've been right to say over and over again, unionism has a right to be confident, but the Sinn Féin victory has been treated like, oh no, reunification is going to happen tomorrow. Oh no, demographics have changed so much that we could hold a border poll. Oh, and by the way, the south of Ireland would also vote yes in a border poll. It's been a gradual process, right? It's been a gradual slow burn, and now it's treated as this like seismic event that no one can see coming. But I think just on that, you're right that even I think in terms of communication between the government and Sinn Féin, Mm -hmm. you know, we're still in an era of, you know, years ago where it was, you know, very adversarial Mm -hmm. and that will have to evolve Mm -hmm. into a similar relationship as with other parties across the United um, Kingdom. It's worth actually for a pub quiz question, what is the uh, British political party, UK political party that has still got MEPs? And the answer is is Sinn Féin. Right, yeah. Yeah, this is a party which we will have to do business with. It doesn't mean that we support their their aims, but we, you know, we'll, they will have to be worked with. Absolutely. And I think this unwillingness to engage with Ireland and the, you know, the difficulties of it manifests itself in another way, which is a lack of understanding of how Sinn Féin has developed as a political force. I think in the UK, they see Sinn Féin and they think troubles, you know, and they think... And the fact they abstain, that their MPs mm-hmm. don't sit in Westminster, mm-hmm. that means you don't, they win five, six, seven MPs, then you never actually hear They're any of them They're not normalised, the yeah. And it just seems very hostile. But an active decision to understand how the politics and the a political organisation in Northern Ireland, specifically Sinn Féin, have evolved over the past, let's say, 24 years would do wonders. Yeah, and on the, the reunification question, Alan, I think if you just analyse the results last Thursday, I think it's quite difficult to make the case that this is a vote for a Bodoc. The point has been made in this conversation that although Sinn Féin were the largest party, unionism still has the majority in the Assembly. What happened was the unionist vote was splintered yeah. mm-hmm. across several parties, whereas Sinn Féin really benefited from nationalists sort of rallying around at the expense of the SDLP, who had mm-hmm. quite a poor performance and every recent opinion poll I've seen on this question has indicated a majority support for remaining in the UK and of course it's a point worth making that the person who decides who has the power to call a referendum is the Secretary of State of Northern Ireland which at the moment is Brandon Lewis however 
perhaps looking long term, and is there a question of demographics? So, for example, several decades ago, Catholics were significantly outnumbered by by Protestants in Northern Ireland. Now, I believe it's more of a 50-50. Worth stressing, of course, that the Catholic-Protestant breakdown doesn't directly translate necessarily to support for the union or leaving it, but perhaps long term, there might be sort of greater forces at work for the want of a better phrase, which pushes. That is the sort of received wisdom. But, you know, look, I think I go back to how are we approaching nationalism? I grew up in Scotland. The SNP has obviously been powering ahead there. And I think there is a, a world where the United Kingdom can attract and make the argument and make the case in a humble fashion that actually for issues like security, defence, other economic reasons, staying in the union is the right thing to do. I don't think there's any age restraint or religious restraint on that, but the way we go about making those arguments is key. And I think the big historical question will be, is a machismo strategy on the union, largely driven by an English sort of nationalist hard Brexit style approach to it, is that the route? to attracting these voters or is something which is more attuned to understanding the reasons why they're tempted in the ways they are but then making the argument back is that the better strategy and I think the big question is what is the best route for that and I think the proof of that will actually take you know a long time to to, to come out. Which route do you think the government's pursuing at the moment the former or the latter? I think as a good chief whip I don't <laughs> want to comment on the government I would just say that one of the things I was trying to do as when I was imposed was to attract that middle ground but also to recognise how they were feeling. Now, when we talk about demographic changes and like the forces that be behind the immediate politics of the situation, I think demographics are changing. They're not changing as quickly as people once thought. But always left out of this conversation about reunification, no matter how far away it is, is Southern Ireland and how Southern Ireland views this process. And are the demographics in Southern Ireland such that they would support a reunification? And what does reunification actually mean? It's not really the attachment of six northern counties onto the existent Republic of Ireland, it's almost the creation of an entirely new state. And with that would probably come things like the Irish National Anthem would probably have to change, given its lyrics and its sentiment. Perhaps the flag, you know, perhaps the capital city might have to move somewhere. And these are very big symbolic trade-offs that matter to people in the Republic. It's left out of the conversation coming from this root problem, which is when we talk about Ireland from a Westminster perspective, we're often not giving it its full attention. We're not understanding it as a whole. We're kind of putting out fires. Greater attention paid to the constitutional process of reunification, the demographic changes north and south, again, would be helpful, I think, to people of either political persuasion. But my only comment on that would be going back to what we discussed around actually the current lack of demand for a change on that front. You get a sense sometimes that the NI parties are obviously working round what are essentially constitutional debates, but actually most voters, women and men, old people, young people, want regular day-to-day issues dealing with. And that actually what can happen is that the constitutional debate becomes an excuse for actually not dealing with those issues. If you look at poverty levels, if you look at cost of living, if you look at areas of uh, deprivation, there needs to be huge amounts of work. And I actually think that there are some amazing, talented politicians in, in Northern Ireland. And I think they all want to get back to work to address these issues that we talked about. 
It's difficult to grapple with the change in the status quo because obviously a vote for Sinn Féin doesn't like directly equal a vote for nationalism, change in the constitutional status, whatever. But a Sinn Féin majority in Northern Ireland isn't insignificant when it comes to that sort of question, you know? So there is some indication that the status quo is changing. Well, I think if you look at the Good Friday Agreement, there has to be overwhelming, well, I, I, yeah. I've forgotten the words, but, you know, there has to be sustained evidence, I mm. think is probably more like it. And my, my worry a bit is that generations of people need their uh, government to attend to their day-to-day needs. And these issues we're talking about are a major topic of conversation and debate and, and politics, but sometimes are prioritised almost as a reason to avoid dealing with those day-to-day needs. And what I saw in Northern Ireland was actually there's some very, very good ministers young MLAs, people that will contribute to those day-to-day needs that we should be supporting and focusing on as much as possible. Sadly, that's all we've got time for this week. But you can read more on all the biggest political stories at politicshome.com and by subscribing to our newsletters by clicking on the link in the top right corner of our website. Thanks so much to our fantastic guests, Finn McRedmond and Julian Smith, and our own Adam Payne. Our editor has been Laura Silver. You can follow our team on Twitter at AdamPayne26 and at LauraSilver underscore, and I'm Alan underscore Tolhurst. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe wherever you get your podcast to keep up to date. If you've enjoyed it, then leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, reach out to us on Twitter at Politics Home or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, have a great weekend, and be sure to listen again next week. I've been Alan Tolhurst, and this has been The Rundown. <laughs>